So, um, prior to starting your faith journey, did you believe in the afterlife? Before you were ever maybe a Christian or before religion was a part of your journey, um, did you believe that there was life after death? Now, for many, the, the thought that there is life after death or the, the curiosity of if there's life after death is what makes people curious about faith or leads them to maybe explore a religion. Now, those who grew up in a home like I grew up in, in like I grew up in a Christian faith or grew up in a home like a, where Christianity um, was a part of that belief system, that you grew up with a belief that there was life after death, that there was something after this life that we have on earth. I mean, so here, here's the reality is, why is there such a longing in humanity to live forever? Have you ever thought about that? And why is there a desire to go to heaven and to avoid hell? You know, it, it, it answers the question that um, we all have. I mean, is there life after death? I mean, is there life after death? And it's in all of us. See, there's a longing in humanity to live forever because of this. God has created us to live forever. You know, this is the reality, that there is a longing in humanity to live forever. And the reality is, is God has created us to live forever. And, and that's why I believe so many people look for the solution uh, of life, look for the quote-unquote fountain of life. They, we want to avoid death, and so uh, we, we don't want to accept that our bodies are mortal, and we almost, in a way, seek immortality at, at some levels. And, but the, we look to religion to answer the question, is it possible to live forever? So is it possible to live forever? And if so, what is the secret to living? Or, uh, in other words, maybe a better way to ask this is, what must we do to live forever? What must you do to live forever? To, to, to go to heaven, what must you do? Uh, to avoid hell, what must you do? What is the secret? Um, what, is it that our good works need to uh, eventually outlive our, or outweigh our bad works when we get to that point of death? Uh, so we can go through those pearly gates? Or is there another system, a religious system, a, 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 a list of check marks that we have to do or accomplish? Is it a, or is it just this free pass that God gives to everyone because he's a good God? And how could a good God let anybody go to hell and not bring them into heaven? What must we do to live forever? Now, I, it's interesting to note something, that those in the first century, who saw a resurrected Jesus, those who saw Jesus come back to life, um, they believed in life after death. And the reason they believed in life after death is because his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, made them certain of what Jesus taught and who Jesus claimed he was. He claimed to be resurrection and life. And his resurrection made that certain for them. So, Go back to the question. What must you do? What must I do to live forever? 
More on that in a moment. Uh, my name is Casey, and I am so grateful to share this time together with you. Uh, for those online, we're so grateful to share this time together with you wherever you are. Uh, for those of you that are new in the room, uh, we are so grateful to be together with you. We have a gift for you at the end of today's service. And if you'll do me a favor, if you'll go at the, uh, to the welcome table before you leave, we'll have a toast there who would love to give you a gift for being with us today. Uh, for those online, if you're new with us, we're, we'd love to give you a gift. And they're posting a link to a Connect card. And if you'll just fill out that connect card. Um, We'd love to send you a gift for being with us today. Now we want to let everyone online and all of you that are new in the room, we want to tell you and show you how much we appreciate sharing this time with you right now. Westside, let's do that together. Will you do that with me? Yeah. So we started this series last week looking at some key stories that Jesus shares and the first century historian Luke captures, puts together in his account that we now call the Gospel of Luke. Now, the reason that we have this account, we mentioned last week that the reason that we have this account called the Gospel of Luke is because of one thing, an event. It is because of one event that, that, that we have the Gospel of Luke. It was the event of the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no reason to record all the things that Jesus did. There would be no reason to court, record all the things that Jesus said in his teachings because without the resurrection of Jesus, there is nothing worth sharing. And see, the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus and his teachings are the true life-giving way and the way that we need to follow. And here's the big idea of the series as we uh, survey the book of Luke uh, in, in, this, in this series. And here's the series' big idea. That Jesus told stories that are keys to the kingdom of God. Jesus would tell stories. Luke would capture these stories. And we're looking at some of these uh, key stories that Luke would share that are keys to understanding the kingdom of God. These stories told by Jesus are the keys that would unlock the understanding or the understanding of the good news, what Jesus would call the good news of the kingdom of God. And that good news of God's kingdom is connected to the longing that humanity has to live forever. See, all throughout scripture, God's kingdom is connected to eternal life. And the reason is this, because God himself is life. And the way that his kingdom operates, the way that he governs his kingdom is a life-giving governance. And the result of his governments is life. The result of being under his authority and being a people in that kingdom is that you are a people of life who are governed in life-giving ways. We see this all throughout scripture. In Genesis, you have in this opening narrative, the Garden of Eden, which is a garden of life. And humanity in the Garden of Eden was in perfect union, in a perfect relationship with God. And and therefore, humanity and all of creation under that was a recipient of God's life. In Revelation, the last book we have in, in, our, uh, uh, in our canon or in our, in, in our Bible is also a, a scene that there's a, a new garden that God makes. And out of this new garden is a, a river of life that flows from the throne of God. It flows from God's throne. Why? Because God is life. And everything in his kingdom receives life. 
See, God's kingdom is life-giving, and God's kingdom, as we've been in this, se- in, in this season as a church family, we are learning that God's kingdom is unshakable. Nothing will destroy God's kingdom. Nothing it can destroy God's kingdom. And the life that he gives is one that death cannot touch. So yes, there is this desire in all of humanity for life, especially in a world where everything dies. And this desire has been around since the curse of sin brought death into humanity and the world's narrative. Now, we're not the only ones then that you can, you can say you're not the only one that has questioned is there life after death? There's, you, there are many others who have questioned how, do, what, how does one achieve or how does one earn or what must we do to, in, to have eternal life? You know, what, what, must, must, what must we do to live forever? And in Jesus' day, this was actually a common question. And questions about achieving eternal life were common in Judaism, which was the, the, the Jewish religion that, that Jesus grew up in. And Luke brings us into this narrative in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to scroll down a little bit in Luke chapter 10 or page over to verse 25. And this is where I want us to start, where Luke begins to write this. On one occasion, so he's, giving, he's bringing you into an occasion where Jesus um, is about ready to explain something about his kingdom. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, I just want to stop here before we go on because there's an interesting paradox here. Luke describes this person as an expert in the law. And and the law would be uh, what the Jews would call the Torah. Um, This would be the first five books of the Bible that God would give through Moses, the prophet. And and these were instructions on how to live in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in this law, the Torah, here the expert is asking a a question. He's an expert in all this law. And he's asking Jesus. And here's the paradox. The expert is asking Jesus this question. Now, the expert doesn't know what we know on this side of the resurrection and, and thousands of years of understanding who Jesus is. Jesus just showed up on the scene. They're trying to figure Jesus out and his claim and trying to test him if he's true. Um, But here's the expert asking a question of Jesus. Jesus, the son of the living God. Jesus, the, the living word of God. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life of God. Jesus, the one who is life and gives life. And through him, all things were created and put into existence. Jesus, he's asking Jesus. So do you see the interesting paradox here? The expert has no clue who he was interrogating. And yes, he's interrogating him because he's there to test Jesus. And the reason he wants to test Jesus is the reason the world's trying to test Jesus because if we can prove Jesus to be wrong and if the world can prove Jesus to be wrong, if he as an expert in the law can prove Jesus to be wrong, then he, he can discredit and the world can discredit who Jesus claimed to be. And now there's another interesting play on words in this question. What must one do to inherit eternal life. See, there's a human assumption that we need to recognize that a lot of people have, even this lawyer had. There's an assumption that we must earn our way 
into heaven. We must earn our way into the kingdom of God. But the reality is, one cannot earn God's inheritance. One cannot earn God's inheritance. One can only receive it. One cannot earn God's inheritance. One can only receive it. The inheritance of eternal life isn't earned. It's gifted. If you've received an inheritance and maybe someone passed away and left you an inheritance, did you earn that? Did you earn all that money? Did you earn that property? No, you received that. Someone else did the earning. You did the receiving. Yet the expert is asking in this moment, in this occurrence, what do I need to do to inherit, to get in on that inheritance of eternal life? What boxes do I need to check? And maybe you're asking that question. What, what do I need to do? What must I check? How do I know I am good enough for God? How do I know this? What duties do I need to perform for this? And then Jesus responds. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live, implying do this and you will inherit eternal life you love god with the full devotion you dedicate everything heart mind soul and strength to him and you love your neighbor as yourself and you will do this now some would use this um, what jesus replies with here as an argument to uh, to 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 argue that one must do something in order to inherit eternal life in the kingdom of god and that was a common belief amongst the pharisees See, many of the common belief of many Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, these Jewish leaders who would, who would execute and they would teach that all the people had to execute all 613 of the commands that are listed all the way from Genesis through Deuteronomy and the Torah. In order to inherit eternal life, you had to execute all these 613 commands. And Jesus affirms something here. See, Jesus affirms, yes, this is a correct practice of the kingdom of God. However, it's not the correct belief of the kingdom of God. See, the outcome is correct. Loving God fully and, 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 loving, and being fully devoted to him and being devoted and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the correct practice, but the starting point is wrong. Jesus was affirming God, that love for God and love for neighbor. But from where... Did the Jews' love for God come? Think about this. From where did the Jews' love for God come? See, it came from God's love for them. The, the, the Jews' love for God came from God's love for them. And this is an important point of understanding. See, one can only love because one has received love. One can only love 
Because one has received the love. The only way the Jews could have been fully devoted to God, the only way that the Jews could love God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength, the only way the Jews could love God was because God demonstrated his love for them by saving them, by delivering them from Egypt. And it was after saving them that God would give them a law to follow. And he gives them that Deuteronomy 6.5 command. And he gives them the Deuteronomy 19.18 command. The Deuteronomy 6.5 command to love the Lord your God with all you are was a response to God saving Israel from Egypt. Just like to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and all we are is the response of God saving us. Leviticus 19.18 is how the people in the kingdom of God live out their love for God, therefore perpetuating the life of the kingdom of God. How we love our neighbor as ourselves, like it says there, is how we do that. See, Jesus is acknowledging something here. Jesus is acknowledging the two keys to understanding the kingdom of God. Therefore, he's putting an end to any legalistic approach to earning or doing enough or being good enough to get into heaven. See, putting an end to legalism that says one must earn their way to heaven or one must be good enough for God. See, the only way that you and I can love God is because God has demonstrated his love for you by sending Jesus Christ into this world to die in your place for you. That's the only way. See, think about this. God has already chosen you. God has already accepted you. That's why Jesus entered this world to die for you. God demonstrated that to you. See, loving God with a full devotion is our response to God's love for us, not the cause of his acceptance of us. It's not the causal, uh, cause and effect to God's love. See, he loves us and we respond to his love with our full devotion. We now love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength because he demonstrated his love for us through Jesus Christ. We can't earn his love. We can't earn a love that has already been given and demonstrated. We can only then receive it. We can only then accept it. We cannot earn God's acceptance by our devotion to him. We can only receive God's acceptance of us. See, receiving by believing is how God transforms our lives and gives you and I the desire to be fully devoted to him. Receiving by trusting in Jesus, receiving by believing that Jesus is the demonstration of God's love. This is the first key to understanding the eternal life that God has given, that his kingdom gives. The eternal life of God's kingdom is understood when we receive it. It's received. And the second key is how we live out as a part of God's kingdom and therefore advance God's kingdom. See, loving others is how we live out our devotion to God because we've received 
his kingdom life. It's how we live out our devotion with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love others now because we have freely received his kingdom life. We freely received God's inheritance of life by believing that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and came back to life, and he freely gives life to those. He makes those who believe in him, as he would tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he gives them new life. He makes you born again when you believe in him. And that new life is devoted to loving God with all we are. And now the way we love God with all we are is we love others. But loving others is hard, isn't it? I mean, that's a reality. I mean, it is hard. Now, it may not be hard for you, but it is really hard for me. It is real. It's hard. And, and I fail in this a lot. Maybe you don't fail in it as much as I do, but I fail in this a lot. And the expert in the law knew he failed in this too. So the expert does what I do. The expert does what you do and what humanity does. Whenever we're prone to fail or fall short of an expectation, we look for a way to justify ourselves. We place a limitation on the expectation that we cannot fulfill. The expert then places a limitation on the extent of his command in order to justify what he cannot fulfill. Thus, he's about to prove that he clearly does not understand. He clearly does not understand the kingdom of God or eternal life. So in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So who is my neighbor? He could have just left the answer that he said correctly, taking Jesus' affirmation and, and, and just mold over that of what Jesus was affirming in that and left it. But he had to justify himself because he knew there was a limitation. And so he does this and he's wanting to know what was common under, a common question in Judaism. They argued about this. Who is our neighbor? See, they, there was this argument, who is our neighbor? It was common understanding that neighbors were all Jews. You know, that was common understanding. And, and, and others believed, as they read the Torah, that others, other Jews uh, or other people who are, are, were an acceptable part of the Jewish community, you know, foreigners who were an access, acceptable part of society and their culture, were neighbors. But really what the expert was wanting to know, something you want to know and something I want to know, is not just who should I love, who do I not have to love? I mean, right, that's the reality is because that's where my love is limited on those I don't like to love. Who do I not have to love? And therefore, Jesus tells a parable, which is a short story to show you and I an insight into the kingdom of God. Now, just to note that this parable is only a response to the question, who is my neighbor? This parable is not a response to Jesus' question, how can one be good enough for God or how can one earn eternal life? This is not a parable to reply to that. This is a parable to respond to, who is my neighbor? And so, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You may have. Which of these, Jesus now turns back to the neighbor, finishes the story. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert, who knows how long he took to think. But he replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The original question was, who is my neighbor? He didn't really get that answer, did he? He actually didn't get the answer. In fact, Jesus shares this kingdom story, this parable, to share that, that his kingdom people are to be the neighbors like the Samaritan was the neighbor. See, God's kingdom people are the ones who are the neighbors who demonstrate Mercy. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Be the neighbor and have mercy to those on those in need. Now, last week I shared a question that I want to bring in, in back to our remembrance. It's a question that I've learned to ask in these parables to help understanding the meaning and the key to the kingdom of God and key to understanding this is what Jesus meant for the original audience. Because Jesus meant something for this original audience in this. And so what does this story reveal about God? What does this story reveal about humanity? And what does this story reveal about God's kingdom? So asking this about what this meant to the, the first century because it can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. And so primarily we ask this, this first question, what does this story tell us about God? Well, before we look at the story, I want you to understand something. that In Jesus' parables, Jesus himself, as he shares the parables, is always, is always the full revelation of God to us. Because Jesus himself in every parable is the one who reveals God. He, as the giver of the parable, he himself. And here's the reality. Sometimes there is a character who reveals the nature of God. But all the time, Jesus, how he responds, how he reacts, what he's doing in this situation, all the time, Jesus is revealing the full nature and the full character of God. That's why, if you're curious to know who God is, look no further than Jesus. And now, this parable, in my opinion, is not to compare Jesus with the Samaritan. However, I've done that in the past, but I, I believe that this is... And, and some may have allegorized this, that the Samaritan is uh, God in this. And, and so in this, uh, it's been done. And, and maybe I would think that if it's been done, it's maybe been overdone. Because we can lose sight then of what I believe is Jesus' true meaning in this parable. See, dem Jesus demonstrated earlier in this passage that God himself is the giver of eternal life. It's an inheritance. One can't earn it. One can only accept it. He affirms that with the expert. Those who have received that life, now in return, they return their love to God by loving their neighbor. So this is what Jesus shows us about God, is that the inheritance of life is free to all who God loves. And 
So we need to go to the next question. What does this show us about humanity? So let's look at the, hum- the humanity in this context and let's see how people should then respond to as being a part of God's kingdom. Well, first of all, let's look at the, the two characters, the Levite and his, uh, his, his hire, the, the, the priest. So let's look at the priest and the Levite. Both were going down. Both were going, descending from Jerusalem. They, in other words, they were leaving Jerusalem. Now, this is a, a made-up story, but Jesus kind of gives you, uh, gives the listeners there a lot of uh, uh, context in this. So, leaving Jerusalem as a priest and a Levite, uh, it can be assumed that they had just participated in the temple worship and the temple sacrifices. As they descended down this common path, a common path that everyone that was coming uh, from Jerusalem, going back to their hometown, they would have to come on this path, which was a common path that everybody in that day and age was aware of. And it was a dangerous path, full of shadows. And and where the shadows were was where the robbers hid. And so this was not something people would look like saying, that's an uncommon thing that would happen. This was common. They saw this a lot. And so the priest who would have been responsible in the temple worship in Jerusalem, and he would have just finished his performing his sacrifices, now going back to where his next thing would be, whether it was home or his next responsibility. It's reply implied, though, that he just did his priestly duty, but yet he passed by, Jesus says on the other side. A Levite, who is, who is someone who helps um, the priest in the the. Uh, the keeping of the temple and the and and the elements of the temple a levite too would pass by on the other side and both of them had likely the same assumption he there was they they likely had the assumption that they did not want to defile themselves because they assumed that this man wasn't just half dead this man was dead and to be in uh, touch uh, or to touch a dead man or a dead person was to make themselves ceremonially unclean so it would prevent them from performing their priestly and Levitical duty. And so in that assumption, they did not want to uh, defile themselves. So they passed by and created a distance because they didn't want to even come close to being uh, ceremonially unclean. And so it'd be a lot like me as a lead pastor coming down this road, and I just got done preaching the Sunday sermon, which I've been working all week on. And I think, you know what? I, I see this, but you know what? I've got to prepare for the next week. And, I, I, and someone else will need to take care of that because I've got my responsibility. I mean, this is what God's called me to do. <laughs> and it'd be like the worship leader. Now, Ryan's better than this. And so there'd be like the worship leader getting, you know, coming by and, and going by. And then all of a sudden, um, seeing the man and, you know what, hey, I got to prepare. I got to lead the worship next week. I got to get all the music ready so the people can sing and we can celebrate who God is and passes by on the other side. See, both the priest and the Levite acted contrary to love for, their, for the abused man, even though they act as if they are devoted to God. It's an error to believe that ceremonial worship is more important than love for our neighbor in need. It's an error, a kingdom error. See, private worship is not more important than showing mercy to your neighbor in need. And then the third character shows up and appears in the story. Jesus, um, the, the Jews, it was, as he's telling the story, the Jews who are listening would have assumed 
that and presumed that the next character that Jesus is introducing is another, like a lay person, a part of the congregation, a part of the Jewish people. Because he went from a priest, a Levite, well, then another Jew. But he makes the audience go, <gasps> when he says Samaritan, a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan was hated by the Jews. And to be fair, many Samaritans hated the Jews. And it goes back in history, and in their ancient history, about hundreds and almost a thousand years earlier, that the Samaritans would, in a way, betray Israel. And from that moment, there had always been hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. And in this story, the hero is the unacceptable Samaritan. See, the Samaritans showed godly compassion and demonstrated love for the man and restored him. The neighbor was the Samaritan. The Samaritan who did the neighborly thing and made the time. He made the time saying this man was more important than his responsibilities and his schedule to keep. That this man what did the neighborly thing, that he gave the effort he, he did what was merciful, giving the effort, putting and, and doing what was uncomfortable for him. He put himself in a place of discomfort. He put his, the, 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 need, the, the man who had suffered abuse on the donkey and he would walk the distance. And he would give the money, saying this man was more important than the wealth he had acquired and what he could have done with the money, which would have been two days of wage. A day, denarii was a day's wage. And he gave the innkeeper enough to pay for, what, four to six weeks of care. See, the Samaritan sacrifice to show mercy was greater in Jesus' eyes than the priests and Levites' sacrifice in the temple. Jesus was implying something. To reject the command to love is to reject God's gift. Of life. Earlier in Luke 7, Luke would describe a time when Jesus illustrated this beautifully when Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house, and as they were there, a sinful woman, Luke describes, enters in, interrupts the party, and begins to pour, break open an expensive jar of perfume and begins to pour it on Jesus. And she anoints Jesus with. The expert couldn't understand how Jesus would allow this to even happen. And what does this do to him? It it would defile him, a sinful woman touching him. And Jesus would tell Simon something while looking at this woman. And he would say, whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. See, Jesus knew We who have received much love have much love to give. And we demonstrate our love that we have by doing what Jesus commands. This is what Jesus would say in John, that he who loves me will obey my commands. And it's not to earn eternal life. It's because we have received eternal life, because we've received God's love for us and this free gift of life that now we have so much love. To give. That's what this is all about. See, the neighbor is the one who gives mercy to those in need because God has freely given us his love, therefore freely giving us his eternal life. 
Therefore, what is our response? We simply receive it and we return that love to God with all that we are. And we demonstrate our love for God by being the neighbor and loving the one in need. See, the kingdom of God is made up of people who see God's love for them and therefore have a radical love to give. And here's a teaching big idea I want to give you today. See, the kingdom of God is made up of people who have been loved much and who love much. Only when you realize how much you've been loved will you have much love to give. Only to the extent that you've received God's love will you be able to give that love away. The kingdom of God is not made up of perfect people. It's made up of loved people who've received God's love. People who know that they're not good enough for God, but they have received God's love. The kingdom of God has been made up of people who love much. See, we need the love of God to have life. And we know that. We know that we will never be good enough for God, and that is the good news. And because Jesus came to demonstrate God's love and that God accepts us and that God loves us, we receive that love. We will never have what it takes to earn God's love and earn his life. And we need to receive it. We simply receive God's love and accept his gift of life by understanding that we cannot earn it and what Jesus did to give it. See, receiving God's life transforms us. It makes us new. This is being born again and we're put into a kingdom of God. And now, because we've been transformed freely, we are the neighbors who show mercy to those in need. Because God loves us, the kingdom people of God are the neighbor to others in need. Notice the man didn't show mercy to everyone. He just showed mercy to the man along the path. And you have people where you live, work, study, and play that are in your path who need God's mercy. So I want to ask you, who's in your path every day? Who needs forgiveness in your path? Who has suffered injustice? Uh, who has been wronged or defrauded? Who has been hurt in your path? Who has uh, suffering from a broken relationship? Who has been taken advantage of? Who is sick physically and they're hurting and suffering? Who's lonely in your path? Who along your path needs mercy? And because you've been a part of this kingdom, you've received what you can't earn. You now have been loved much and you have much love to give. I want us to pray together, and we're going to do this the way we've been doing this. I'm going to ask you to stand. Will you stand with me? And then I want you to find a couple people. If you're new with us, this is something we do together as a, as a, as a people. I and mean, we, we pray with one another. And I want you to find two to three people. If you're, if you're uncomfortable having someone pray with you, just say not today, and we'll, we'll respect that. But Wes, I don't want anybody to be left alone. And this is what I want you to pray. I want you to pray for that person. And then we're going to end our sing, time singing together in our, in our demonstration of our worship. But this is more important than anything. I want you to pray for them and I say, Father, help my friend see the opportunities to love people in the way that you've loved him or her. I want you to do this. And then after you pray with them, if there's a moment and you feel led, hey, is there any other way that I can pray with you? Ask that. And let's love one another in this place and encourage one another. Will you go ahead and do that? Online, we encourage you to do the same. So go ahead and break out in these groups and then we're gonna end our time singing together in a moment.